Yo, what's up, everybody? It's time for the Inner Off the Bench podcast. I am Daniel Ball, and I'm joined as always by my co hosts, my partners in crime, my brothers from other mothers, Jim Cross, Randy Jowers, and guys, tonight's episode 20 titled Rocky Top Redemption because we're bringing on the man himself, the head coach for the best college baseball team in the country, and Randy's most favorite team on earth, dude. I know you're ready. You know, guys, before we bring Coach Vitello on, I got to start with you, Jim. Jim, it was a good weekend. You actually got to go see some pro baseball this weekend. How'd that go, and what are you looking forward to this weekend? So, yeah, I got to go see the Carlins, and luckily went to the game that they uh, actually won in the series. So, shout out to them for winning 8-3. Got to be in Bush Stadium. It's very interesting, Daniel. I've been in all these college stadiums, so when I walk into Bush, it feels just massive more than normal. But, uh, you know, speaking of going to a different size stadium, I'll be in Hattiesburg this weekend, and it's a dramatic irony for us, Daniel. We just had on the boys from Kennesaw State, and of all teams, who do they draw? LSU. So I'm heading there Friday, and I'm going to be watching Josh Hatcher and Tyler Simon go against my LSU boys down in Hattiesburg. Let's go Hatch. Go Owls, baby. Go Owls. But, Randy, real quick, man. Obviously, we know what Coach Vitello is going to tell us about this weekend, but I'll get the fans' perspective. How good of a draw or how bad of a draw did the Vols get? Let me tell you something, DB. It doesn't matter who comes. It don't, it don't matter if it's Campbell Suits, Campbell College. It don't matter. What you're going to have is a 100% chance of bombs this weekend. You're already at Lindsey Nelson. A lot to be made about how small it is. We've seen Tennessee hit home runs out of Swayze, Judy Noble. It doesn't matter. They were down in Texas dropping bombs. But this weekend, you have three of the top ten homer hitting teams in the country in one regional. And Tennessee, obviously, is number one. Number seven is Campbell. Number eight is Georgia Tech. And I guess Alabama State's just there for the ride, son. But it's going to be dominance, dominance, dominance. Man, well, speaking of dominance, what a great segue into our guest tonight. Guys, let's jump into it. Help me welcome on to the show with the biggest interview in podcasting this week, the head coach for the number one college baseball te- team in the land, the University of Tennessee Volunteers, Coach Tony Vitello. Coach, I'm going to cut right to the chase here. Before we get into your backstory, I read an article recently about your dad said he counted 23 fans at the first game you ever coached for Tennessee. When you think back on those crowds and what you've seen the last two years and specifically this last weekend in Hoover, what does that mean to you as far as what you've built there? Yeah, I mean, you kind of get emotional about it, to be honest with you, because, I mean, anytime you go to a place, um, you know, say it humbly, you want to leave it a better place. And, you know, you can talk about wins and losses and things like that. But, you know, someone's won here before, someone will win here later. But you kind of want to make an impact like the coaches you saw when I was little here. Like Coach Fulmer was winning trophies, but also just like the presence he had on the sideline. It it was a thing. It wasn't just a good team or a trophy. It was a thing. And then Pat Summit was that maybe even to a greater extent or or basically just about as big of an extreme as you can get. So when you get here, 
or a place like Arkansas where the whole state revolves around the university you're at and it's more of a thing uh, for lack of a better word, you want to make it as good as you can because, um, you know, it's what the people deserve that surround the place, but also it's what they brought you in to do. And in my particular case, it was the first school to kind of take a chance on me to have this leadership role instead of just being the guy running around watching, watching games on the road. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's amazing. And in order to get to where you're at, you had to start somewhere. So, you know, for those who don't know, Tony, you know, where are you from? Yeah, I'm from St. Louis. I grew up in North, North County there. Ferguson Florissant School District is where my mom taught. And then my dad taught at a private school, DeSmet Jesuit High. It was the first year the school was open. They moved to St. Louis because my aunt lived there and uh, he just needed a job. So he jumped on at a high school that had just opened. We ended up working there for 46 years. And uh, it was a good drive from my house. I grew up about 35 minutes, uh, you know, really just with moderate traffic even. And uh, I went to high school there with my dad and rode every day too uh, with him. And then depending on what was going on with sports uh, for him and myself, he was a coach there and, and I played three different sports. I'd ride home with him a lot. And uh, so it was great. That was time we maybe wouldn't get to spend together because prior to that, it's not like he wasn't around a lot, but he was working awfully hard uh, to make ends meet. And he's just a hustler in general. So uh, we maybe missed out on some times together that we made up for later during my high school career. And then because of his career, and I hate to jump ahead, but maybe a question you would ask, uh, because of his career, uh, he was tied into University of Missouri because of recruiting. He had some great players. I wasn't one of them. Uh, but that's ultimately what got my foot in the door at University of Missouri. And I had a couple stops in college before that we could talk about. But, um, you know, a lot revolved around his legacy and his job and his reputation that that went on in St. Louis. Yeah. And one of the things before we get into that, man, I got a bone to pick with you. You know, all three hosts on this show are St. Louis Cardinals fans. And we hear you say you're from St. Louis. And then the rumor on the street, we see the pictures. <laughs> you're a Cubs fan, Tony. How is this? So my dad's from Chicago and he brainwashed me. We'd go visit my grandma all the time and he took good care of her. I was never fortunate enough to meet my grandfather. I think I was born before he passed, but um, you know, other than that, my dad had to go up there and take care of her a lot. It's where my uncle, his only brother, his only sibling uh, lived. So we'd go visit and we'd go to the Bears games and the Cubs games all the time. And then eventually I begged my way into a Chicago Bulls game to see Michael Jordan play. It was actually Shaquille O'Neal's rookie year. So it was a pretty special game when they played the Magic. Um, but the other thing is at home, my dad was watching the Cubs on WGN. And back then, a lot of people don't understand, at least our players don't. Like you had the Sunday game of the week a lot or, you know, a Saturday game maybe every now and then. Other than that, it was WGN and it was TNT playing the Braves. And unfortunately for me, I watched a lot of losing baseball. Those, some of those teams were just brutal for both clubs, but that was what was on TV. And I'm a nostalgia history guy. I mean, Wrigley Field just sucks you in. So it wasn't like I ever hated the Cardinals. You have to respect that organization. I loved going to those games. I loved Ozzie Smith, um, but I liked watching the Cubs with my dad. It's the ultimate father-son sport. And that's his team. So it was kind of hard to pull away from that. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned your dad and you talked about the time you spent, um, you know, your relationship with him has been well documented. You said that, you know, you belong on any coaching tree. That's the one you belong on. Can you just put into words that relationship that molded you into the coach that you are and made you the leader of men you are like he is? Yeah. And I think um, a lot of the values and, and what I saw him do that made him successful, I try and copy. But at the same time, what I learned from some other mentors is you got to be true to who you are. So, I, you know, I grew up differently and, um, you know, maybe a little bit different personality from him. But overall, the values that I saw him instilling in young guys uh, when I was sitting on the bench watching and growing up were ones that were sometimes tough to watch because he was hard on guys. He was a disciplinarian and a huge work ethic guy but you saw how it helped people turn the corner. And then you saw how people would come back years later and say, you got me to where I'm at in my business career or my college athletic career because of what you instilled in me. And it just stuck with me. Um, and, you know, so to me, a lot of the things that I learned, I actually learned as a fan sitting on the bench. I'd always sit next to whoever my favorite player was, you know, that I got along with. And then I'd sit there and watch whoever my favorite player was on the field and trying to emulate what they were doing. Um, you know, and then at school, I'd try and copy what my dad was doing. I'd want to be the one to pick teams or make the rules or argue with the <laughs> umpires or officials or anything. Um, so it was, it was a lot like any other son, you know, I don't know what country song it is, but it kind of talks about how the son starts saying things the dad is and, and copying things he's doing. And, I think every kid does it with their their either father figure or, you know, whoever's looking after them. And, and for me, it was so many days at a soccer field, baseball field, basketball court. And, and that's what bled into what I do now, I guess. Yeah, that's I mean, that's awesome. And, you know, he's not the only one in the family. I want to get to, uh, you know, you got three older sisters. You know, they always talk about how much swagger you got, coach. You know, is that come from having three older sisters growing up? <laughs> I don't know. I think just the fact that I survived that whole situation, a dad that's working really hard at work and I'm around three sisters and a mom, you know, surrounded by women. I think it made me tougher, um, but it also made me softer. I hate to admit it, but uh, no, they're, they're feisty and, and they were into athletics as well, whether it be participating or cheering for. And I think something that I kind of watched how they were at games, because there were some games I couldn't sit on the bench or didn't, the loyalty piece and how you kind of approach game day and support game day. Um, I'm not saying I do it the right way, but the way that I've always done it was kind of bred from being around them. And it, it truly is a sports family. Um, my youngest sister, we just got her Christmas gift. It was blues tickets. And I don't think she would ever want anything else. And then um, one of my other sisters, their family is probably the most loyal fans you can possibly have. And, and my oldest sister too is a great athlete and kind of tied in to my dad's job too. So my mom knows all the right things to say and do as a coach's wife, which is a very tough life to lead. Um, so without sounding overly cliche, which is what coaches do, it, it's a family affair. And uh, I was the youngest. So kind of like uh, my youngest niece that knows way too much about life at way too young of an age. Uh, she learned it from everybody that's in the family that's older. I was younger and looking up to everybody. And unfortunately, I had some good examples and role models, if you want to call them that, to learn from. 
Yeah, shout out to your mom. We've seen, um, you know, some some articles where you've said she was the glue that held the family together. And we can only imagine how hard it is ra- raising your kids. And like you said, your, your father's coaching all the time. But I'm going to ask you an honest question since you said they were athletes. You know, who was the most athletic sibling? <laughs> that is a tough one. Oh, man. And they'll hate me for it. But I got it. I don't think it was me. I think it was the oldest. Um you know, Christine, Katie, and Kara are, are my sisters in that order. And Christine, the oldest one, might have been the most athletic. And um, I, I'll be dang if they're all not incredibly competitive. And in three different ways, definitely three different personalities. Um, but, you know, they kind of match my, my father's intensity. And for me, it was like, I better keep up with these folks. <laughs> Even if it's just watching a game on TV or watching one of the games my dad is coaching or my sisters are participating in, it was a high level of intensity and had to learn how to keep up and, uh, you know, kind of learn too to hate losing. Uh, when, when there was a loss in the family for whoever it was, it, it wasn't like no one was allowed to eat, um, but it was a different vibe in the air. And uh, so I think that's something that kind of stuck with me too. So, you know, you mentioned that your athletic career wasn't the biggest and, you know, we talk about, you know, your siblings, but everybody knows you for a coach, but, you know, give me your, just right off the top of your head, what was your favorite playing moment as an athlete? You know, I I think for me, I was always going to be a role player, no no matter where I was at. And so I went from a Jesuit school in the, at the NAIA level, because that was kind of the level I belonged recruiting wise to a junior college because I was envious of being at a big school. And, you know, I had always played against like Jason Worth and I played with a couple of big leaguers. I wasn't a great player, but I was always kind of at the highest level of competition. And I wanted to seek that out. But I also know deep down as far as you're going to get might be the furthest you can get in your coaching career. There's not many, you know, NFL head coaches that weren't in the NFL or MLB managers might be a better example uh, that were not big leaguers themselves. So I wanted to get to kind of that higher level. And so I'm a role guy at Missouri, pinch run, defensive replacement. Uh, but in my junior year, I started the final game of the year against Texas A&M. And, um, you know, I always beat myself up in front of our players for not being a good player. I was pretty good that day <laughs> for whatever reason. The stars aligned. And uh, my dad was there and see, see kind of the enjoyment on his face afterwards or the pride. Um, and then it was just also the feeling for me, I was always in the back of my mind, like, when's this hard work going to pay off? Everyone says it pays off. And, uh, you, you know, I was fortunate enough to be a part of some great teams and, and play a bunch of sports. And I played at a big school in Missouri. So it's not like it was terrible, but when's kind of my moment in the sun? And that was a brief one. And one that maybe no one even else noticed besides me and my dad that day, but it, it was a good day for me for sure. And it was kind of the end of the year. So it was close the book on this particular year. It was was a good feeling. Yeah, no doubt. sounds like a blast. Well, I got one more question and I'll let Randy get into all things coaching. You know, um, we talk about the coaching tree between you and your dad, you know, of all the players you've had the privilege of coaching, who would you say is the most likely to follow in your footsteps and be a head coach one day? Oh man. Um, I think right now, you, you know, fortunately I'm coaching with some guys like coach Elander, our third base coach, Richard Jackson was a, a reliever for us. He's, he's the bullpen coach. Luke Bonfield's our player development. I coached him at Arkansas. Our infield student coach is Ricky Martinez. All these guys are studs, but if you're going to go straight from the question of player right now, Evan Russell, um, was an outfielder for us converted into a catcher and he's kind of our Jake Taylor. 
I mean, he's the older guy. Um, he can hit. He leads. You know, the catching part has really gotten good because he's worked at it. But really, he's effective behind the plate because of his leadership abilities. Um, and I know he's kind of always said he wants to coach one day. And I think he's really good with media. He's really good at handling freshmen, kind of being on them, but also putting an arm around them. Uh, so that that's a name that sticks out for sure. Absolutely. We agree. We've had Evan on here many times. He's been more than generous with his time. But, Coach, going back into you, your playing career, you had your, your shining moment, right? Then you kind of go right into coaching at Missouri. So how much did it mean to you to coach where you played and also under uh, your, you know, your former coach in Jameson? Yeah, no, that meant a lot because basically what I did was ask if I could coach. Um, and he said, no. And then I said again, well, why not? And, and this was a separate, you know, time that I went into the office. He's like, you're not going to coach the guys you just got done playing with. That's not going to work. And then I wrote a very heartfelt letter and he caved. Um, and so he was a guy that gave me an opportunity. Now, granted, that opportunity was, hey, you can come out, but any one day we might tap you on the shoulder and tell you we don't need you around anymore. And that tap never came. Um, so I was appreciative for the initial opportunity, him sticking with me just because I was a hard worker, and then the opportunity to coach. So I wanted to give everything possible back to him. But also, I think it worked out kind of in a unique way. I was already throwing BP to our guys because I was a bench guy. Uh, I was watching the game from the bench. I was able to steal signs uh, from Iowa State back when they had a program. So I was kind of already trying to help in some way. And now I was all of a sudden thrown into a position where I know I can help. And so I was trying to do as much as possible all at once. And I think ultimately it kind of won over um, Coach Jamison enough that he put me into that full-time role only a year later because that opened up in a quirky fashion. Um, so one frustrating thing, and I'm kind of bouncing around, kids I coach now like Evan Russell or these other guys I mentioned, they look at my situation and they're like, well, I kind of want to do what you're doing. Well, I wouldn't be where I'm sitting now if that that first two years didn't work out the way it did. Just it, flat out luck. And it was just a really goofy set of circumstances. Uh, but I did get that opportunity. And I, I don't want to say like I got it and run, ran with it. What I did was I just wanted to give back as much as possible and finally contribute because I wasn't the starting shortstop when I was playing. And uh, in a weird way, it got me the full-time job. And then it made the first year of the full-time job go pretty well. And I was able to kind of build or stack on top of that. So, Coach, what you're saying is Evan needs to write a heartfelt letter to you <laughs> to get a job on the staff. So you would hire Evan Russell at some points, what I'm hearing, but we can move on. Sure, sure. That. No, I, I, I would hire him to maybe, if I owned a pizza place, maybe to spin the pizzas around a little. <laughs> no, that's, a, that's an inside program joke that we talk no, yeah. about stuff like that. But uh, Evan doesn't need to write with his letters because his mouth is always going at practice and everywhere else. So, uh, so I got all the info I need from him. Absolutely. So obviously, you know, you leave Mizzou, you spend three years at TCU under Schloss, who's obviously killing it at Texas A&M now, including the transition into the Big 12. Kind of talk about what was that transition like for you guys going into the Big 12 under that program? You know, what was strange for me was I went there and it was a year in the Mountain West. And the Big 12 at the time I was at Missouri was, I mean, it was just marauders around every corner. I mean, both Kansas schools had new coaches. Coach Hill and Coach Price were killing it. 
And those are supposed to be, you know, along with Missouri, the worst teams in the league. And then Nebraska is the furthest north. But Coach Van Horn had that thing into a monster. So the league was insane. And then you go to the Mountain West and it was a total different vibe to it. Um, you play teams twice. Um, you're on the West Coast. It was just completely different. And it was it was a little bit of a strange adjustment. And the other thing was TCU was rolling so good. It was almost like, hey, we're not supposed to lose any games. And you just came from a league where any game you actually won was like time to pop the champagne. Um, so it was different. And then you go back into the Big 12, but it's a new league. Um, so the whole set of circumstances was was very unique over the course of three years there. And to be honest with you, the first couple of years, my head was buried so deep in the sand of recruiting. Um, I think it doesn't matter who you are as a coach or who left or how good of a program it is or the, when there's change, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough on everybody. And, um, you know, I had to get to work on that deal. And that's where I spent awful, uh, you know, a ton of time, I should say. Um, but overall, it was it was interesting kind of seeing going away from the Big 12 and then getting back in. But yet the league was new because there is a lot to knowing the league. And I don't think I would have got this job if I hadn't worked at Arkansas but prior to here. Um, when you know the league, you kind of know what to expect. You know how to navigate through it. And every league in college is good, um, yeah. but also every league in college is unique. So uh, I think it was interesting kind of basically being in three different in three different leagues and over the course of four seasons. Seasons. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned Dave Van Horn. You spent your time at Arkansas, even as a college World Series appearance. I obviously, you know, you're giving credit to that, but what does that set you up for the job you have now? Obviously, but maybe specifically, what about that set you up for your success now? You know, everything. I, I think my dad um, taught me how to be as a person. And again, that's far from perfect. I think he taught me how to treat other people. Um, and then Coach Jameson kind of basically did the same thing, but at the college level, especially the how to treat people part. I mean, you talk about integrity at the highest level, but coach Van Horn more than anyone taught me winning baseball championship level baseball at the college level. And in particular in this league, and that's, you know, I can get more wordy on it, but I feel like I'm trying to make as grosser or as much of a blanket yeah. statement as possible for everything, whether it's pregame or things to do at the beginning of the year that you wouldn't do at the end or vice versa. Um, so much of it came from being around him and it was great. I mean, I asked questions at times, but really all it was just kind of watching and learning. And the funny thing is I get the job and immediately all these coaches want to know, all right, what's the secret sauce? What's going on over there? Blah, blah, blah. And my answers were incredibly boring. Uh, cause it is, it's, you know, it's the genius is in the simplicity type of thing, but he's, he's very dynamic at those simple things. No, absolutely. So fast forward a little bit, you know, you talked about getting the job at Tennessee. I think that was actually in the fall of 2017, uh, for the 2018 season, but why Tennessee and why then? Yeah. You know, I think at the time I was at probably mentally the best place I'd ever been as a coach. Um, I finally got my roots in Fayetteville. Um, I really like the people that I worked with. It's hard to not like the stadium and the fan base and you're competing for championships and the recruiting, which was so important in my life was finally, I finally felt like I knew what I was doing a little bit and it was kind of settled. Like, you know, we, we're losing Andrew Benintendi, but we we're bringing in Dominic Fletcher and, you know, not everybody was as good as those two guys, but it was, it was organized and I felt peace of mind. 
And now the world kind of turns upside down on me with this opportunity. Um, but I had been dying to be a head coach really for over a decade. And a lot of people assume because you're at a bigger school or your salary is decent, you don't want to go down a level. But I had gotten to a point where I was hungry for any opportunity to be a head coach. Um, and I think the Tennessee one came about in a unique fashion because normally a lot of people will say it's not what you know, but who you know. Well, I'm like, well, I don't know anyone at Tennessee. That's great. That job's open. I'm not going to waste time on that when I've got work to do at Arkansas. But it come to find out I had recruited someone who had became an administrator here and we had a relationship. I worked with an academic coordinator for baseball that I worked with at Missouri and then another administrator I had worked with at Missouri. And uh, the AD, John Curry, had a tie to two people that are very important in my life that were mentors in baseball. So now, not, a, not one big connection, but there's five or six small ones, and they kind of start to click. And it, it was crazy how it went down. A local reporter just wrote an article on how fast and, and again, how quirky it was, a 24-hour turnaround period, basically, um, that I'm out on this field, you know, out that way, given a, you know, press conference. Oh, absolutely. So another thing that I've noticed about you, and, and I think as a whole at Tennessee, you've been on the sideline, football, basketball, you know, dressed up even. How important it is that you think to buy into not just baseball, but as a whole in the in Big Vol Nation is that for not just you, but for football and for everybody to buy into each other? Yeah, I, I think um, a lot of that comes from DeSmet, where my dad taught. I mean, he was always helping with fields and events and working the scores table for basketball and announcing at football games. And so that was what you did. Like you, if, if you worked there, you weren't the baseball coach who also teaches. And those are the two things you do. It was you're, you're a part of the school and uh, in every way, shape or form. And so that's something that I admired and something I wanted to do and something I feel like I did when I was a student there but then you get thrown into this recruiting coordinator position at a young age when you don't know what you're doing and you're constantly trying to make up for lack of experience with effort. Um, I never could do that before. Um, but now it's a good thing in this position because you need to get out in the community and, and you need to interact with people. And, um, you know, fortunately, I'm blessed with Coach Elander beating up the phone in the, in the road as much as I used to. So, you know, that's that's in my mind how it all comes together. And Knowing Tennessee a little bit from when I was little, again, I mentioned Pat Summit's name and some of the other things. You better be a part of that, you know, the way that it's not just me. It's the other coaches and other people here because that's what's required. It's it's a very unique place. It's impossible to say we're the best or we're the fifth best or it's a very, very unique place and it's a special place. So it, it's a requirement, in my opinion. Well, I'm biased, but you guys are the best because I've been a Tennessee fan my whole life. <laughs> I appreciate but, uh, that. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, your first year, you have players that even some of these newfound Tennessee fans would probably know, like Luke Lipschitz, Evan Russell, and they made mention um, in some articles and on here with us that you're kind of the laughing stock of the SEC. So tell us what the vision for you was from the beginning, and did you see it happening the way it has so fast? I think the vision was we better um, – First of all, we wanted to, and when I say we, it was me and Frank were the first two guys right away, our pitching coach, Coach Anderson. Um, we wanted to win right away or be competitive right away just for mental peace of mind. But also, like, you better get in the fight right away because in this league, if you're down, someone's going to look to kick you and punch you, and you may never get back up. Um, so we wanted to make some sort of progress, and 
And there wasn't any one great strategy, but I think eventually what we start talking about here in the office is we want to be better in the spring than what we are in the fall as a team. It's for everybody, but we talked about it a ton. And then year two definitely needs to be better than year one. And it was just kind of that improvement thing. And again, maybe we didn't do it on purpose, but maybe a little bit of that as a carryover from what I was talking about with coach Van Horn is, you know, we, we, we try to keep it simple, but we also try to do simple better, I guess, as the t-shirt says, or, or, or whoever. Keep it simple, stupid, the kiss method. <laughs> yeah, no, there's a lot of stupid, trust me, up here in the office, but at least we have fun. <laughs> Absolutely. So coach, after the, you know, you, the pinnacle so far this season, we hope it's not the pinnacle of the whole season, but you know, you, you start talking, get a little emotional and we all love to see it. You start talking about guys that not only on the team, but you mentioned Evan, you mentioned Pavelone, you know, Liam Spence, Max Ferguson, those guys talk about how guys like them and Evan Russell have really helped create the culture that you and Anderson and Elander and everybody's kind of made in Knoxville. Yeah. I, I think they've done statistically a tremendous job. And then they've done the old locker room thing that anyone who's been on a good team, heck, even in the little league uh, in little league ball, you, you got a guy that can maybe affect the others around them. Mm -hmm. But the biggest thing for me is I've learned from those guys and, and you know, what's going to work here at this particular place. What's not, I've gotten feedback from those guys. And it reminds me of my first year of coaching the, the year that I begged to be the volunteer Ian Kinsler transfers in. And Ian does things with a little bit of West Coast swagger and a different this and that. And I'm here. And um, at first it came off as arrogance to me. Well, my, my inexperience with confidence showed. I, I didn't know what true confidence looked like. And Ian, Ian, I've never told this to Ian. He's the first person that ever really taught me what true confidence was. Um, coaches gave me, you know, bits and pieces of it. Um, but I learned from that kid a lot. He's not a kid anymore. He's a, a potential Hall of Famer. Yeah. Um, but I would say similar things about those guys, even now that it's a couple decades removed from Ian. Um, I've learned from those guys and they've affected the program. So that's what I was kind of trying to express in the interview that I think you're talking about. No, absolutely. So obviously you talked about getting better year over year. Last year, 50 oh. wins, make the trip to the College World Series in Omaha. Doesn't go the way you want it to. And a lot of people now coming into the season, Jim and I did some, you know, we did some write-ups and people have revisionist history now saying, of, oh, we knew this was coming. We saw it, but they didn't, coach. I, we, we were reading it. We kept the receipts. They had y'all <laughs> ranked around 20th. Nobody was picking y'all to win the SEC. So what was your message to the team? Not just after last season, it was hard seeing guys leave like Pavs and those guys, but more so, hey, guys, we got to move on. What was the message coming in and what was the goal? Was it still College World Series or bust? You know, I, I think – there's always different things that come up throughout the year, but to encapsulate them into one thing, I think the 21 group was a lot of bitterness of 2020 being taken away from us. And we had guys like Garrett Crochet. Um, so it's like, it almost kind of hurt us at times. Like we were trying to play two great seasons in one. Um, but it, it did drive us a little bit in 21 and 21 became such a beloved team that this 22 group was like, let's, let's take the strengths of that team and kind of embed them in what we're going on, but let's go out of our way almost to be this year's team, not last year's team. And even though there's some carryover, I mean, Drew Gilbert, you know, hits a big home run. He's still on the team. Evan Russell changes positions, but he's still on the team. So I think a lot of it was let's, let's take the identity or let's make the identity, the 2022 group, 
and yeah, let's uphold the standards that have, you know, maybe been thrown out by the 21 team as well as all the lessons learned. Yeah, I'm going to take the opinion of guys, you know, especially who got drafted as high as they did and, and played for you. You know, we had Pavoloni and Chad Dallas and Liam Spence on an episode after the season. And those guys came on here and said that they expected this team to be better than last year's team. And that's coming, that's a lot coming from guys who are leaving the team. So um, we, we held that when we were doing our projections because we, we admire those guys, especially, you know, you were talking about the leadership. Um, whatever Pavoloni says, I, I'm locked in, you know, you, <laughs> you, you sell me, but um, you know, obviously congratulations on the success so far. The job's not done. We know that. Um, but before we let you go, we got a quick little game that we play with every guest. I got some of the questions from your current and former teammates. So you down to play real quick before we let you go? Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Bring it on. All right, so it's very simple. It's this or that. We give you two options. You pick one or the other. You just don't say neither. You just don't say both. You ready? Okay. All right, this one came from Evan Russell. He said, would you rather go on vacation with Max Ferguson or Liam Spence? <laughs> Liam Spence, because I'm going to Australia, baby, and he's going to be – I jokingly say interpreter, but he's going to be my tour guide. And, and that's really going to happen one of these days. I've been once, but it was a short trip. I want to go back. Absolutely. That sounds like a, a blast. I'm down with you on that one. So who would you rather or no, who would you say has more style? Would you rather have Beck's hair or would you rather have Kirby's mustache? <laughs> but Kirby's hair, is, it kind of throws the question off a little bit because of that hair Kirby has going. Pretty um, legit. That I'm going to. I'm going to side on the fans that I love so much. They go nuts when Kirby comes in the game. So I, I'm going to have to maybe uh, maybe say Kirby in that deal. Which I'm going to have to throw Pavoloni under the bus because all your players this year have came on this show and said that they pay attention to the swagger you have. Pavs tried to say that he's never paid attention or noticed it before. And so he was just straight lying. He <laughs> lied to us, coach. <laughs> Pav is all business. Pav is – he doesn't – there's no flair for Pav. He's forge ahead at all times full speed. No doubt. So is the glass half full or is it half empty? It's always half full. It is always half full. There's no doubt about it. No doubt. All right. Your boys can only keep one of these for their celebration when they hit a home run. The daddy hat or the fur coat? Which one goes? Which one stays? Oh, man. I think if you're going to – hopefully the fans aren't listening. The fur coat's a little over the top, and I – I realize we're in a new era of baseball where guys flip bats and, and celebrate doubles and stuff like that. But uh, the fans are relentless when I go on the road or I'm at an airport about the daddy hat. They absolutely love it. So I think that's why I kind of had to stay this year, even though this group wanted to be unique. So they added something to it. So we'll go with the foundation as opposed to the icing on the cake. With the I don't think the fans are going to get mad because most of your players said the same thing. Randy, if I'm not mistaken, only Trey said he'd keep the fur coat, right? Yeah, it's true. Coach, I got a question for you, a little off topic. How bad does that fur coat smell? It, it's starting to get a musk, and it's also <laughs> starting to get a, like a texture. Like, um, I don't want to say crusty, but it's got some sort of – I can't hit a home run. I couldn't even when I was in better shape. Um but I, I, if you notice me in the dugout, I'll steer, steer clear of that thing because I don't want to smell it. And I don't, now we're getting to the point where it doesn't need to be touched by anybody. <laughs> no doubt. So, all right, would you rather go to a sporting event or a concert? A concert, hands down. Um, I mean, it's a great adrenaline rush when the sporting event and everybody's on the same page. But I'm a big music fan, and I don't get to do that as often as, as the sporting stuff. But So what's the one concert you'd go to right now? Oh, man. I'll tell you what, Luke Combs' voice is insane. 
uh, I wouldn't mind seeing that again. So, you know, uh, but I like all kinds of music types, so I could bounce around all over the place. But first instinct is usually a good answer. You're going to miss Morgan Wallen at the block party Friday. You're going to be busy. <laughs> I, uh, I was like, my sister hit me up with that. So I texted him. Uh, he's a fan of all sports. So, um, I think we got some fake news there, but. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> breaking well, news. I mean, we can certainly set up an iPod and, and uh, blare it over some speakers. I actually knew that already, Randy. I'm surprised you missed it on Twitter, but I, I had I heard that, that too. Fast. Now, um, would you rather have massive success by accident or modest success on purpose? Um, you know, again, I got to go back to that sign of, I always looked at a harder worker, a hard worker will soon succeed sooner or later. Um, sorry, I'm trying to spit it out fast, but basically I, I would want to see, you know, the fruits of the labor a little bit. So I'll take modest results. Um, to me, the journey or the work ethic and the stuff like that is stuff you better enjoy because there's only 56 game days, but there's a lot of practice days. Absolutely. All right. So these last two questions, these are the tough ones. You've gotten all the softball questions. Coach, would you rather save a hundred strangers or one loved one? Whew. That's, that's tough, but loyalty <laughs> is loyalty's in the blood for Italian. So I don't want those hundred people getting harmed, but they can, they're, they got a lot of numbers there. They can fend for themselves a little bit. I'm saving my guy. I'm with you. All right, this last question is our staple question, and I'm interested because of basically what all your players have said in regards to this question. Would you rather spend 10 years in a coma or five years in prison? Oh, man. <clears throat> there actually was an article about what it's like to be in a coma, and I didn't click on it and read it, so I, I could have a more educated answer here. Um, we don't want that. We want straight from the hip. <laughs> I'm going to go five years in prison. I'm going to do like Leonardo DiCaprio and departed. I'm going to do some push-ups, maybe get in a little better shape, make some friends on the inside and then celebrate life when I get out. <laughs> yeah. Mo most, uh, most of your uh, guys have said that they would take prison, but we don't believe them. Some of them are a little too pretty. I don't, I don't know, coach. I don't, I, I'm not a believer. Yeah. Trey ain't wearing that fur coat in prison. I can tell you that. <laughs> No doubt. Well, we appreciate your time. We know you're a busy man. Uh, like we said, uh, best of luck this week. And, you know, uh, man, go get them, Coach. Thank you. I appreciate you guys. Thanks, Coach. You bet. Take care. And that's Tony Vitello, everybody. If you like hearing his story or you just like hearing us average Joes talk X's and O's, please like and share the podcast on Facebook. Retweet us on Twitter. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Anchor. As always, comments, ratings, and feedback is always welcome. We'll see everybody next week for episode 21, where we got University of Tennessee softball star Ivy Davis joining us. This has been the In Off the Bench podcast. As always, remember, strong body, sharp minds, great and dry all the time. We out. <laughs>